Welcome to China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. China regards its money as an ambassador to the world. It would like the yuan, or renminbi, to be held in just as much esteem as the euro, or even the US dollar. In other words, a truly global currency. China is proud when other countries choose to hoard up some of their national reserves in yuan, keeping Chinese money safe in their vaults alongside dollars. Yet central banks, which have had access to China's bond markets for the past few years, only keep a mere 2% of their reserves in yuan. Furthermore, enthusiasm for Chinese money has waned in the face of the pandemic. With major cities such as Shanghai affected by lockdowns, there's concern about China's economic stability. Well, I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast today Arthur Krober, a founding partner of Gavakal Dragonomics, a China-focused economic research firm. His book, China's Economy, What Everyone Needs to Know, is published by Oxford University Press. Arthur, welcome to China in Context. Hi, I'm delighted to be here. Let's start with something basic. Can you help me by solving a linguistic puzzle? There are two words for Chinese money, renminbi and yuan. Are they the same thing? That is a, a point of uh, perpetual confusion. They are the same thing. They can be used interchangeably. Uh, the Chinese language distinguishes between a formal title for the currency viewed as a whole, and that's renminbi, and the word that would you, you would use if you're just saying, well, I'm going to pay for this restaurant meal and I'll, I'll give you 50 yuan. You wouldn't say 50 renminbi. So there's a, essentially a formal and an informal way to refer to the currency, but they're referring to the same thing. Well, thank you for explaining that. Many experts say to me that if the yuan is to be a truly global currency, it needs to be set free. In other words, they challenge the idea that its price needs to be controlled. Can you run through for us why the Chinese intervene to maintain their preferred exchange rate and also explain to us how they do it? China is a large exporting country, uh, so they have a lot of goods that they export, but also a lot of goods that they import. And they're also a big investment destination. So a lot of people want to bring in capital into the country to invest in factories or the stock market or the bond market or whatever. And I think for a, a country like China, one of the problems is that if you just had totally unregulated flows of money in and out, the value of the currency would bounce up and down quite a lot, depending on how popular it was that month or that quarter as an investment destination. So for many, many years, their basic policy has been to make sure that the fluctuations in the renminbi exchange rate are pretty modest. And the reason for that is if you're bringing money in as a foreign investor with a long-term perspective, you want to make sure that if you're going to invest $100 million in a factory, uh, that you can sort of estimate the the rate of return on that factory very predictably over a long period of time. And if the currency goes up and down by 20 or 30 percent on a regular basis, your earnings from that factory in your home currency might be not very consistent. So China has always had a bias to making things predictable and straightforward, particularly for the people working in its export economy. And so they want to keep uh, exchange rate fairly stable. And they've had different ways of doing this for a long time. They just had a fixed rate against the dollar. 
Then for about 10 years, they had a system where the currency, the renminbi went steadily up at, against the dollar at a slow pace. And then for the last seven or eight years, they've allowed some movement upwards and downwards, but they try to keep it within a tight range. And the idea is that this promotes overall economic stability and investor confidence. Some people call these moves by China to support the yuan manipulation. What's your view? There's no question that they intervene quite heavily in the foreign exchange markets. Back in the early 2000s, this was done directly by the central bank. They would buy and sell uh, renminbi to maintain its value. They also required uh, exporters to surrender some or all of the dollars that they were from exports to the to the central bank, and this enabled them to control things. And in fact, we've seen Russia do a similar thing recently, uh, as the ruble has un- come under pressure because of European and U.S. sanctions. So China used to do a lot of that kind of direct intervention. Now they tend to do it indirectly by giving instructions to the state-owned banks to buy and sell currency to maintain the value. So there's no question that there is intervention. They also have some relatively transparent mechanisms uh, in terms of saying, here is the the benchmark rate that the central bank will set each day, and then they'll allow some fluctuation uh, above and below that each trading day. And then once it hits the limit, then they kind of automatically intervene to maintain that value. And market participants understand that. The question is, you know, when does this go from management to manipulation? I think what most economists look at this closely have felt for the last several years is that broadly speaking, most of the time the renminbi is trading pretty close to what it would in an unfettered free market. And what the what the central bank is really doing is making the extremes both up and down. They're kind of cutting off the tops and the tails, if you will, uh, to keep it more stable. But it's not fundamentally uh, different in value than it would be in a in a free market situation. That's why I personally would prefer to call this currency management rather than currency manipulation. Manipulation is when you're trying to have a value for the currency that is just totally disconnected from what it might be in a more normal uh, free trading uh, situation. Well, I can see why stability is regarded as important. It was the word I read the most in reports about the big political meeting held this year. Isn't it in everyone's interest for China to keep the yuan's value steady? by means of these exchange rate controls. After all, fluctuations in the currency could potentially be very disruptive for China's trade partners. Well, I, I, you know, I think there are different ways of looking at that. So first of all, if you look at the way that they've managed the currency over the last several years, sometimes they intervene to support its value, to make it stronger. Sometimes they intervene to make it weaker, and that's actually what they've been doing, I think, for much of the last few years. The currency has been very strong, and they want to prevent it from getting a lot stronger because they're afraid that that would weaken their exporters. And I think this is where it becomes troublesome because other countries would like to be able to trade with China on a level playing field. And if China is deliberately suppressing the value of currency and keeping it a little bit weaker than it would normally be, then this disadvantages other countries that are trying to export to China, because what that means is if you're keeping the currency a little bit weaker than it would be, then you're reducing the purchasing power of Chinese people to buy foreign goods. 
So I think there's a fundamental difference of opinion here. The Chinese view is that stability is really important. You have a stable value of the currency that's more or less aligned with its market value most of the time. That's good for China. That's good for everyone else. You know, and I think a lot of people in the rest of the world will say, well, no, you're managing this in a way so that you always have a little bit of an advantage on the export side, and we always have a little bit of a disadvantage in trying to sell goods to China, and this has been persistent over time. So if you look at China's trade surplus, it's been very large for many years, uh, and in fact has gotten larger the last uh, two or three years uh, during the pandemic, and its currency policy arguably plays a role in sustaining that perpetual trade surplus. I understand that China wants to maintain monetary independence, but I have a question about the relationship between the government and the central bank, the People's Bank of China. My understanding is that Xi Jinping takes a fairly hands-off approach when it comes to the central bank's actions. What's your analysis? China has a central bank that is essentially directed by the government. Um, the People's Bank of China does not have the kind of independence that we have learn to take for granted for the Bank of England or the European Central Bank or the Federal Reserve, where the monetary authorities can pretty much do what they want, and they don't take orders from the government. The People's Bank of China has some operational autonomy. So from day to day, they have quite a lot of flexibility in what they can do. But on big decisions, including interest rate cuts uh, or raises, the government will often intervene. And we've had a couple of instances recently where there was a change in benchmark rates in China and the central bank officials seemed very surprised to hear about it because it was decided by their political masters. But a lot of the big decisions are still determined by the state council, uh, which is uh, China's governing body, or even by the Politburo, which is the, uh, the Communist Party uh, governing group. Let's turn to the field of fintech. You've made a study of the digital renminbi. What is it and how does it work? You download an app on your phone and this uh, you're able to uh, fill up your account with money that you take from your bank account and you can buy digital renminbi from the central bank. Um, so in, in some respects, from a user's standpoint, it's not that much different from a payment app. But in technical terms, uh, it is actually the, the digital equivalent of uh, a banknote uh, directly issued by uh, the central bank. And I think the reason that the central bank in China has been interested in creating a purely digital form of its currency, one is uh, they do have an interest in reducing friction for payments, by reducing these fees, you can make it theoretically cheaper and easier to move money around. So that's one reason. The other is, frankly, uh, surveillance. Um, if you have digital transactions uh, taking the place of cash, there's no record of that transaction. And so no one has any ability to, to understand what's going on there. With a digital currency, every transaction has a record. So even if I'm, I'm technically anonymous, when I'm making the transaction, there is a digital record of the transaction. I find it interesting that you mentioned the word surveillance. It makes me think about the concept of social credit, the system by which people's online behavior is monitored by the government, including their financial behavior. 
and they're then rewarded or punished according to how they act. It's an approach which has led to a lot of external criticism. First of all, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about the social credit system outside of China. So I think there's this this idea that people have that it's a fully formed database of everything that people do online uh, that results in an algorithm creating a score like a credit score for you. And it just doesn't work like that. It's a much more fragmented system. Uh, It patches together all kinds of different things. And the idea is to um, basically create more accountability for both individuals and companies for following rules and regulations of the society. It does clearly have some, if you will, some Orwellian potential if it ever became sort of a more comprehensive, all-seeing surveillance system. But I think it's at present, it's better compared to a whole host of things that we have, you know, in other advanced societies for creating compliance and enforcement of laws, not least the credit score that Uh, particularly in the United States, uh, has an enormous impact on your ability to open a bank account, get a loan, borrow to buy a car, whatever. There are a lot of aspects of the social credit system that essentially are not that different from what we would consider to be normal sort of credit scoring mechanisms. But it it does exist within a, a political system which is obsessed with the idea of controlling and surveilling everything. So there's a risk that it becomes a much more sort of totalitarian mechanism of control. Uh, And theoretically, the digital currency could play into that in the sense that if you had a large proportion of online transactions moving away from Alipay or WeChat Pay uh, into the central bank digital currency, the government would have more direct ability to monitor individual transactions and then trace them Right now, it's, this is a hypothetical interest because the digital currency accounts for less than 0.2% of online financial transactions in China. It's really minimal, um, but it does create a, a potential capacity for more comprehensive surveillance of financial transactions. Thank you, Arthur, for making these important economic ideas come alive. That was Arthur Krober a founding partner of Gavacol Dragonomics, on the line from New York. This podcast is produced by the SOAS China Institute, part of the University of London, and you can find out more about our courses and research at soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from us here at the China in Context podcast team.